0: Hi Bridgeway, it is uh, really nice for me to be with you uh, today and to be able to teach this passage of scripture that we're going to be looking at. Uh, I'm so glad that you are all here and it's nice to be able to be together even though we're not actually physically together. Um, We love having you guys watching online and uh, it's a real thrill for us to to be able to share God's truth with you. Uh, Most of you have probably had the same experience that I've had sometimes when I'm trying to find my way someplace and I'm using my GPS on my phone and you put the GPS in there and you know what it's like. You, it all of a sudden comes up and it shows your car, but you can't make out where you're at. I mean, everything is so small, and, uh, and sometimes you, just, you know what you need to do. You just kind of zoom out, right? Because zooming out is something that's really sometimes everything that you need to just gain a little perspective on, uh, on where you're at and where you're going. And uh, today what I want to do in this passage is I want to do the very same thing. I want to kind of put an exclamation point on uh, our study that we've been doing through the book of Ephesians and kind of get to the primary thrust of what it is that we're doing as well. But I want to preface it with this quote. And this is a quote I want you to chew on a little bit. Uh, it's, It's one that's really been convicting for me. And the quote is simply this, I only love God as much as I love the person that I love the least. Let me say that again. I only love God as much as I love the person that I love the least. Now, if that's true, and I have every reason to believe from what I understand the New Testament teaches about this whole issue, that it is true. You know, in 1 John, uh, John tells us this in 1 John 4.20, if anyone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he is a liar, for he he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Man, that's convicting, because quite frankly, there are some people that, you know, I probably love not all that well, right? But here's the thing. Sometimes we are living under the illusion that we think, well, I just, all I have to do is love God. But maybe in a way we're sabotaging our ability to really love God by the way that we treat other people. And so today in our study, uh, what I hope will happen by the end of the study is that most of us who are listening here, and I know we really wanna love God and we don't wanna be sabotaging our efforts, we'll find some tools that will help us to understand maybe how we can do that a little bit better, not only loving others better, but loving God better as well. So let me rewind and recap some of the things that we've been doing. Uh, We're in part uh, 2.5, I know we're between part two and three on this, Uh, part 2.5 of our series called Connecting with the Church. And uh, the book of Ephesians is Paul's great manifesto on the New Testament concept of the church. And what he does in chapter one is he talks about the magnificent God that we serve who has a magnificent dream for the universe. He is reordering and in the process of reordering everything under in right alignment to Jesus Christ. Paul calls it the summing up of all things in Christ. And the idea there is reordering, having a place for everything and then everything in its place. So as Paul is kind of laying this out, he then talks about the primary agent for who's gonna be doing this reordering work of God in the world. And the primary agent is this entity that Jesus called the church with a capital C. So how did God work all of this out? That's what we're gonna be looking at today. And there are really two phases of this. That's the message of Ephesians chapter two, is how God works all of this out, how he kind of constructs the church. And he does it really in two phases. The first phase is that God takes the reclaimed lives of human beings. The transformed, reclaimed lives. You might think about this like you would think about a brick. So a brick, you know, uh, a lot of times we take building materials and we will reclaim old materials and kind of clean them up and, you know, shape them a little bit differently. And then we use those for something new that we're doing. Well, that's what Paul talks about at the very first part of Ephesians chapter 2. That God has taken people from death into life. He's reshaping the individual lives of human beings and making them into building blocks, so to speak. You know, Peter talks about um, each one of us as people who belong to Christ being living stones that are being built up into a spiritual priesthood. So that's the idea behind it is that, hey, we're taking some, some, uh, some blocks here. Those are the raw materials of this thing called the church. But then there's another phase to it. And Brian talked about this last week, how God wants to take these individual reclaimed, transformed parts, and he wants to begin to connect them together to one another. And the defining mark, this new expression of this thing called the church, the defining mark of this is that God designed this, and if you like the fill-in-the-blanks, here's the fill-in-the-blank for you on your outline. God designed the church to be a radically inclusive community. A radically inclusive community. So let me do a quick drive-by of Ephesians chapter 2, the second half of that, and, uh, and maybe kind of bring this to light again, and then I'll just talk about some of the implications of it. In Ephesians chapter two, starting in verse 11, Paul begins writing and he says these words, therefore remember that at one time you, that is Gentiles in the flesh, those who were non-Jews, you were called the uncircumcision by the group called the circumcision, which is made in flesh by human hands. And remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the Commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. You see, throughout the entire Old Testament, humanity was really divided into two groups. There were the Jews, and then there were people who were the non-Jews, who were called the Gentiles. And throughout the Old Testament, the Jews, as God's special favored people, always looked down upon the Gentiles. And those Gentiles were excluded from being part of the people of God. There was no way that they could do that unless they became Jewish. So... This created something. This created a a kind of a a bad blood situation. And what happened is we found these two groups here, they became excluded. They, They separated themselves. In the Old Testament, the Gentiles were thoroughly excluded from being part of the people of God. They were pushed out of the way. That's what the Jews did to the Gentiles when they did that. So as I think about this, I was thinking about how we do this today, that we kind of, in the same way, Put up boundary markers. We we are incorrigible excluders. We are natural born excluders. Bishop John Reed tells a story of uh, um, driving a bus in Australia with a group of white students and then a group of aboriginals who were on on the same bus. And there was all kinds of squabbling going on between these two different groups. And finally, he just got sick and tired of it. He stopped the bus, stood up, and he said, okay. He turned to to the, the boys that were white and he said, what color are you? They said, white. He said, no, you're green. From now on, you are not white. He said, you're green. He turned to the group of the aboriginal. He said, what color are you? They said, we're black. He said, no, 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 you're green. Anyone who rides on my bus is green. You're green and you're green. So now what color are you? He said, green. What color are you? Green. Great. Got in, started driving again. About five minutes in, he hears this little voice in the back. Okay, all the light green on this side, all the dark green on that side we can't help ourselves. We are naturally born excluders. We'll find all kinds of ways to mark off our territory and to create boundary markers. And let me just run some of those by you that we do today. Race is a boundary marker. Gender is a boundary marker. Skin color is a boundary marker. Ethnicity is a boundary marker. The income bracket that you fall into, that's a boundary marker. How intelligent are you? What's your IQ, right? That's a boundary marker. Education is a boundary marker. Where'd you go to school? What university did you attend? Did you do a master's program or a doctorate? Body type, very strangely. Are you thin? Are you pear-shaped? Are you overweight? It's a boundary marker. Or political ideology, which is a big one in our world today. But interesting as well, churches do this. Churches do this. Do you know that people who are outside the church often feel about the church the way that Vincent Van Gogh did? I have a painting here of Vincent Van Gogh, and uh, this is a painting that he did. It actually describes or or expresses how he felt about the church. When you look at the picture, what do you notice? There are no no doors. There's no way to get in. And that's how Vincent Van Gogh saw the church, as this little tight-knit community that would never let anybody else in because we're natural born excluders. We even do this within the church. I've been in churches where, if you didn't read a King James Version Bible, oh, there was something wrong with you. Or if you had a different kind of theology, maybe about creation, or a different different kind of theology about sovereignty, or a different kind of theology about end times. Well, you are looked at as a second-class Christian, second-class believer, second-class follower of Jesus. And we use these boundary markers to create distinctions between one another. You're like this, you're like this. And eventually what happens is there are certain groups of people who become insiders and there are certain groups of people who become outsiders. And I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but when we do that, we might actually be misrepresenting the very character of God. I love this quote by Annie Lamott. She says this, She says, you know, you have successfully created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people that you do. Ouch. Yeah. I look around and kind of think, well, who are the people that I love the least? And in a sense, that's what we're doing. We're creating God in our own image when we begin to create distinctions between other people and ourselves. I'm a natural-born excluder. So are you. So are you. So, Paul begins to get in this, and at this point he turns a corner in chapter two, verse 13. He says, but now, man, are those not sweet words? That's like music to your ears. But now, in Christ Jesus, those of you who are far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And Paul now goes on to explain the new thing that God is doing with this community of people. In verse 14, he says, for he himself, that is Jesus Christ, is our peace who has made us both into one group and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in ordinances so that he might create in himself one new man, one new man, a new humanity, and that he might reconcile both of us to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. God is doing this new thing, a new community that he's creating. And as God has a vision for this and this community gets created, it will cause seismic shifts to occur in the lives of people. First of all, there's a vertical shift that occurs, and you can see this in verse 17. It says, and he, that is Jesus, came and he preached peace to those of you who were far off and peace to those of you who were near. Scholars are sometimes divided about this as to what peace means here. Is it peace with God, peace in a relationship with God, or is it peace between two different groups of people, the Jews and the Gentiles? Uh, I'm most comfortable with seeing this as a peace between God and man, that when Jesus came, his whole life was an example, an exhibit of preaching peace between God and man to both groups, both groups getting the same message. But then there's also a horizontal shift that occurs, and you can see this again in verses 14 through 16 with the repetition of the word one. We just read that, but did you notice it? Made us both one group, has created in himself one new man, one new humanity, and might reconcile both of us to God in one body. One body. You see, what God is doing in the church is he is putting together a new social order. A new way of reordering, not only the lives of individual human beings, but a new social ordering of human beings. And you know, it's really interesting when you trace the progression of this throughout the Old Testament into the New Testament. At the very, very beginning, there was an original community. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the Trinity. This beautiful community of beings, of spiritual beings, who were co-equal with one another in power, essence, and glory, all sharing together, all loving one another, all submitting to one another. This beautiful sense of community. And God was so full of what that community was that he decided to extend it to human beings. God wanted to share that with other creatures. And so he created human beings and he extended that community to them. Adam and Eve are brought into that community of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But obviously, as you know, the Bible talks about this, things went sideways. And so eventually in Genesis chapter 12, God renews a sense of community by creating a people out of a man named Abraham, a nation state, people who would be a magnet and a model nation to the rest of the world. That was kind of a renewed sense of community. But as you well know, throughout the Old Testament, that community of people also failed to truly represent God with who they were. They became very exclusive to anyone else who wasn't Jewish. But when Jesus came, something changed. The shift occurred. In the cross of Jesus, in the blood of Jesus, God changed everything. And he brought those groups together to create one new group, a retooled sense of community. And someday, someday, when all of history is wound up, when everything is put back together and everything is put right, there will be a final community, the new Jerusalem, heaven, where we will all share together in a perfect sense of community again with one another and with God himself. It's a beautiful thing when you begin to think about it. And Paul in verse 18 says essentially the same thing. For through him, we both have one access or access in one spirit, to the Father. So the ground underneath the cross is absolutely level. The ground underneath the cross is absolutely level. I want to show you what that would look like a little bit. We talked about it. He preached peace to those who are far off, peace to Here's what it would look like. It would look like God bringing these two groups of people together into a new expression, a new expression of a social order, bringing them together toward another but there was something even bigger than just doing that. And we see that in verses 19 through 22. So then, Paul writes, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the entire structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord and in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place of God by the Spirit. God takes these living stones, he connects them to one another and he begins building a holy temple. The imagery of the temple here is really important and Brian did a fantastic job describing this last week. But the idea behind a temple is simply, a temple was a place where God resided and dwelt, was where he was at home among his people. And the temple in Israel really represented the very dwelling place of God there. See, it's always been God's plan to have a place where his presence would reside and feel at home, where he would have a control center in the universe. And the interesting about that is that this temple, it's not a building, it's not an organization. It is a community of people who belong to him and are bound together to one another. It's always been God's desire to build this kind of place. And when you begin to think about it, when Paul began promoting this vision of community that Jesus had given to him, when Paul began to do this, man, it was like dropping a social nuclear bomb. I mean, nothing like this had ever happened before. This was absolutely unheard of in the ancient world. Because you see, in the ancient world, uh, in the ancient world, people really stayed within their tribe. They were highly tribal, they were highly exclusionary. If you didn't belong to their family, their group, their tribe or their ethnicity, you were treated with extreme suspicion. You were treated with skepticism. People shoved you away. They kept their distance. I mean, you talk about social distancing. This is like social distancing on Red Bull. I mean, it's, it's, they they just, you stay away. And you would never, never really ask those people to be a part of what you're doing because you just didn't trust them. That's the way it operated in the ancient world. So to take outsiders, To take outsiders to accept them, embrace them, enfold them, assimilate them, to treat them as equals? Oh man, that just blew people away. But this is the beauty and the genius of the church. The beauty and the genius of the church is that everyone is welcome if they want to come, everyone. Philip Yancey, in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, talks about this when he talks about the Old Testament laws uh, uh, regulating um, ceremonial purity for the Jewish nation. And you'll recall that that really ceremonial, ceremonial purity was a big deal among the Jews. And they excluded people who did not fit or were abnormal in any way, shape, or form. So if you had something going on, if you had any disfigurement, if you had any disability, or anything like that. You were excluded from attending temple worship service. You were considered unclean. If you're a menstruating woman, or you ate certain kinds of foods, or you just had a baby, you were excluded from being part of that fellowship. But when Jesus came, he did something amazing. He began to dismantle that system. The system was based in saying basically no oddballs allowed. Not gonna allow anyone who's an oddball to in. And he turned it on its head, and basically what Jesus said is simply this. Everybody's an oddball. Everyone's broken. Everyone's defective. Everyone's disabled. Everyone's an oddball. See, that's the beauty of this. That's the genius of the church because this was absolutely revolutionary. There's one more step in this because this is not what what Paul uh, wanted to see. This is not the vision of Jesus right here. This. Let me tell you what it is. It's this right here. This is the vision of Jesus. To intermingle these pieces in such a way that their lives, if I can get this, their lives would speak to other people in a different kind of unity, a different kind of community, a different way of doing things. Where it wasn't just this group over here and this group over here, but it was everyone connecting to everyone else. And see, this is us. This is the church. This is the church right here. A radically inclusive community of people. See, really, that's what we are. We're just misfits, we're all freaks. But we are misfits and freaks who are constantly looking for others and welcoming them into a new kind of community where change and transformation and wholeness can be pursued together with one another in this beautiful community of God. And man, there was nothing like it in the ancient world. Nothing like it at all. That's what's behind so much of the New Testament, by the way, is the struggle that it is to bring people together who are very, very different, who have different ways of thinking and different ways of talking, different ways of doing things, but bringing them together in a unified community where they contribute to one another. And this I believe is the power of everybody. The power of everybody that everybody's wanted, everyone is needed, everyone is included, everyone is enfolded, everyone is assimilated, everyone's valued and everybody contributes something to the rest of the whole. That is the church. And the defining mark of that church is that it will be radically inclusive. So I've often thought about this. Okay, so if that's the message really of Ephesians chapter 2, this radical inclus- radically inclusive community, then how do we get there? What will it take to become radically inclusive? And I think this is illustrated, or at least some of the steps are illustrated in a story that comes from the New Testament. It's actually out of the life of Jesus that we find in Matthew chapter 9. So if you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to turn to Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38. And you'll probably remember this story, but it says the end of, uh, of, of Matthew chapter nine. And Jesus was going throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness or affliction. And seeing the multitudes, he felt compassion for them, for they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. The first thing that I think it takes for us to become more radically inclusive is simply this, we have to see people the way Jesus saw people. We have to see people the way Jesus saw them. Interestingly enough, the Greek term here, and and, uh, as I told you before, there are two ways to talk about seeing. There's physical seeing, but then there's comprehension. Like when we say, oh, I see. Right here, this Greek word uses that idea. Jesus was looking at the multitudes, not just physically, but he was actually seeing them. And he was seeing them and feeling compassion because they were harassed and helpless. They were broken and wandering. They were directionless like sheep without a shepherd with no one to care for them. And man, I gotta tell you how often I see people as weird or intrusions or interruptions. I know sometimes you and I can see people as enemies or adversaries all the time. if They don't think the way we think or do the things that we would do. I know sometimes we see people as competitors or as dangerous or as irritants or as freaks. Man, I do it. I know you do it. Jesus saw people differently. And I think the first step has to happen is you've just got to be able to go, how will I look at people? Will I look at them for who they are? they are right now, or who they can be. Well, I look at them for the potential that they offer to God, or am I just going to see them according to my old boundary markers? I think that we have a lot to learn from everybody. So if I sometimes just say to myself, maybe I can learn something from this person. Man, that really helps me become much more inclusive in my life. There's a second thing, and I think that's this, that we have to feel what Jesus felt. We have to feel what Jesus felt. One of my questions whenever I come to this is, uh, for me, most of you don't know me, but I'm not this person who's super compassionate. I have to work at it, Um, and uh, it's not natural for me. So I look at this and I go like, how did Jesus feel like this about people? I mean, the word here simply says that he he was moved in his guts, literally. It's the term for the intestines here, that he was moved in his intestines. Like when you have a super strong feeling and it affects you physically, that he was moved, that he saw them and he felt compassion for them because he knew what was going on in their lives. And sometimes I just have to to think to myself when I'm around people that that might be hard for me to love or that I might not want to be around is to be able to say, man, I wonder what it's like to be them. I wonder what it's like to face what they're facing. I wonder what it's like to have grown up the way they grew up. I wonder what it's like to have faced things that they faced. And sometimes I have to, to try to, to use my imagination a little bit as I look at people. I don't always do it, but it helps me when I do, uh, when I do it. And then, thirdly, we have to respond to the way Jesus responded in this passage. So, what's interesting in verse 37, it says this And then he turned and he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, he says, Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into The harvest, and this word here for praying is the word for begging. It is an intense kind of word for prayer, and I've always thought of it as like, well, that's great. Jesus turns to his disciples and he's like, "I want you to pray," which is normally well, I'll pray for you um, when I feel compassion. But Jesus is actually doing something else here. I think Jesus, this is a backhanded way of Jesus recruiting the disciples into his mission. Because I think Jesus knew this. When Jesus says, I want you to get on your knees and I want you to beg the Father to send workers out of the harvest, that you just can't do just that. If you hit your knees and you begin to pray, oh God, please send someone else. Man, he knows you can't do that. He knows that what you're gonna do is go like, man God, send me. Send me. So when Jesus turns, it's like basically saying this. You and I, we need to get in the game. We need to get into the game of reaching out to people who are outside the walls of our churches and welcoming them in, of reaching out with the transforming message of Jesus in their lives and encouraging them to seek him and to find him in that. But then there's a fourth thing in this passage, and I think this, it's never going to happen unless we do what Jesus did. We're never going to become radically inclusive unless... Unless we do what Jesus did. I know we oftentimes say, well, what would Jesus do? But I think it's better to say, what did Jesus do when you're looking at these things? Notice in verse 35, it says this, and I think this is the secret folks. And Jesus went about through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every kind of disease and every kind of affliction. The Greek verb here, Jesus went, is actually an imperfect tense, and here's how you translate. And Jesus was going about continually. Jesus was going about continually in all their cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every kind of disease, and every kind of affliction. And here's the upshot. Here it is. And Jesus saw people the way he saw them. I think Jesus felt the way that he felt, and I think Jesus responded the way that Jesus responded because he was elbow deep in their lives. He was elbow deep in their struggles. He was elbow deep in their brokenness. He was elbow deep in their afflictions. He was elbow deep in all of the things that they were facing that he saw in them. And I don't think this, I don't think you can ever become inclusive of other people until you rub shoulders with them. Until you somehow get into their world. And whether it's a child or a teenager or an adult, I don't think you can do that. And I think the beautiful secret of becoming more radically inclusive in our lives is to simply see what Jesus saw, people see see people the way Jesus did, feel the way Jesus felt, respond the way Jesus responded, but understand that all that flowed out of this, that Jesus got into their lives, got into their world, got into their cities and their villages and their synagogues and wherever they were. Until we care about people, they're not gonna care about what we say but when we do care about them, something happens. And at the very end of the day, it's the supernatural, superhuman strength and the love of Jesus that moves through us and motivates us to become radically inclusive to others who are maybe very different than us, but are being welcomed by the open arms of Jesus himself. And when a church becomes radically inclusive, and I love what's happening here at Bridgeway and seeing what we're trying to do in order to, to reach outside of our walls and include other people in this great, beautiful relationship of knowing Jesus and learning who he is and just being discipled in him. Man, when a church becomes radically inclusive, everybody wins. Everybody wins. Those people outside our walls, they win. Lost people get found. Broken people get healed, oppressed people find freedom. But we win too. When that happened, man, we welcome in new brothers and sisters to our family. Our love for God is able to grow even further. We are able to get closer to him. And we become richer because of the relationships that we have with these other brothers and sisters. The world wins when this happens, by the way. There's a shining example of how people can live together in true community in the life of the church. And then the final thing is this, God wins. God wins because God's glory becomes manifested through this bright and shining community of his people. So I want to take a few moments and I'm just going to pray for us as we're winding down here. And uh, I want to invite you to join me as we pray together. Here we go. Jesus, I mean, um, I hate even talking about this because I'm so poor at it, but I believe your word that even where I struggle, this is true, that you have designed your people, the church, to be a people who are radically inclusive, that no matter where someone has been, no matter what they have done, no matter what color their skin, no matter whether they're male or female, no matter what socioeconomic strata they come from. But Lord, you want them, you value them. And you've decided to use your community of people to, to reach out to them, to welcome them in, to absorb them and assimilate them and to make them part of this new family that you call the church. Lord, I pray for us here at Bridgeway, would you teach us how to do this? Even better than we're doing it now, and I think we're taking some amazing steps, Lord, but we still need you every single step of the way. So would you carry us? At those times when we're tempted to go a different direction, would you pull us back in line? Would you prompt us by the power of your Holy Spirit to keep pursuing this great, magnificent vision that you've started? Lord, may we truly be the church in the world that you have designed, and that you wanted. We pray all of these things in the strong name of Jesus. And everyone said, amen.